You're listening to The Above the Mug Show, a podcast that highlights people whose passions drive their life. My name is Lucas Spinoza, and I own a coffee shop. Every day I meet dozens of interesting people, and today I sit down with one of them to inspire you to live your life passion forward. What is going on, everybody? It's your friend Lucas Spinoza coming at you from my office inside of the Black Sheep Lounge right here in Welland, Ontario. This is Above the Mug, podcast that highlights positive people. You can't see me pointing, but I'm pointing at my guest across from me. He is a positive person who does what he loves for a living, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Today, joined by Ross McFarlane. He works at Flet Beccario as a lawyer, and he's also the Presidente of Le Marmiton International, which we're going to get into a little bit later. Ross, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. How are you, Lucas? Great, thank you. So I've known you for... Maybe two or three years now? Two or three years. It hasn't been from the beginning, right? It was, no, co- it was you maybe were, a year You after. were selling uh, coffee at the market, I think. I That's there. right. Yeah. So the Farmer's Market in Welland is where we met, most likely. Uh, and that's kind of where our worlds collide, is a love of food. Uh, I don't think anyone loves food more than you do, and, uh, and really has a deep appreciation for the art of or the culinary arts. So I'm sure people will argue that. You'll probably be too humble about it, but... What exactly got you excited about food? What got me excited? That's a great question. Um, I would say that uh, it had to go back to my mother. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother is a great cook. She's a wonderful baker. um, And uh, she really uh, makes amazing food. And for her, I think food is is a great way to show love. And I've always believed that that is the case. It's a great way to... Uh, to express love for people and uh, uh, to prepare great food is uh, is is just one of the most wonderful things you can do. I love it. So um, when I first met you, that that was kind of like this air of mystery surrounding you was Le Marmiton. I had no idea what it was, and I still don't have a full understanding of what it is. So maybe before we get into how you got into it, can you give us a little rundown of what it is that you do? Yeah, for sure. So uh, Le Marmiton is an international gentleman's cooking club. So uh, it started in Montreal mm-hmm. um, and in 1977. And it was a group of uh, Europeans who had landed in Montreal and who had a similar kind of thing going in their home country in Switzerland. And uh, they um, uh, got people together under the guidance of a, a nun, actually, named Sobert, um, and they would get together every month and cook a meal together, learn how to cook it, and then enjoy the meal together and learn from their mistakes and uh, maybe enjoy a glass of wine as well. And uh, so that's how it started. Um, what we do in our local chapters, we have 19 chapters across North America now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our local chapters, we uh, cook in a facility. It could be a uh, like a legion hall, or it could be a, a cooking uh, school. We mm-hmm. cook in the Niagara chapter at the Canadian Food and Wine Institute at Niagara College, which Couldn't is amazing. Be any better? Yeah, it's it's a great facility and great people there too. I, I can't say enough good things about Niagara College. So, um, but we uh, we get together once a month. We invite a guest chef uh, from a local restaurant or from the teaching staff at Niagara College. Uh, to come in, they create a menu uh, for us, usually four or five courses. We divide up into teams. Each team prepares and serves one course uh, from start to finish. And the chef dines with us and tells us what we did wrong and what we did right. And uh, we usually have a great time and a great meal. And it's a, 
I mean, a lot of our members, uh, you know, the only thing we have in common is food. And uh, mm. uh, it's a great way to meet people from all walks of life. And I uh, really love it. That's amazing. So for someone, I'm not, say, I'm not saying this has to be a recruiting factor, but for someone who wants to join or first joins uh, a local chapter, do they have to have any culinary knowledge at all? Or is this, it's not so much, you're not looking, it's not really a culinary school, but you are people who are enthusiastic about cooking and looking to learn, right? Right. So it probably helps if you can cook an egg to start? Yeah, I mean, I would say that most of our members come in with a passion for food already. Um, that said, uh, I've learned something at, I mean, I, I've probably cooked at a hundred uh, events now, and I've learned something at every event that I've taken away with me. Cool. Um, and you know, I was cooking long before I did that, and so um, it's it's not a class. It's mm. not a. Uh, it is completely hands on. The chef is in the kitchen with us, not doing the cooking, but telling us how to cook. And 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 so it's not really it's not structured as a class. Some people call them classes, but that always kind of gets my back up a little bit because it's, that's not the idea. The yeah, it's idea just is friends coming together, friends coming together, working as teams, and uh, enjoying the meal together. That's awesome. So you were a founding member or or the founder of the Niagara chapter, correct? Yeah, I was the founding president. Very cool. And so you've passed the torch now. Yes, uh, actually, my brother Alex was the uh, was the second president, oh, that's and awesome. uh, so I was the president uh, of our chapter for five years. Uh, we got our charter in two thousand five, and uh, I passed that torch in two thousand ten. And then uh, a couple of years ago, he passed it on to a fellow named Mike Burles, who's our chapter president right now. That is awesome. So why why not get into food instead of uh, being a lawyer? Or like, because I'm assuming you must love being a lawyer, otherwise you wouldn't have been doing it for so long and not switching over to cooking. Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, uh, you know, I never really considered a career in food. Mm-hmm. Um, I people have asked me, you know, if I ever thought about opening a restaurant, that kind of thing, and I think I, I my my standard answer is that I like doing something that I also love to do and that affords me the ability to eat out a lot. So <laughs> particularly if it's with clients, because then I can write it off. But uh, Absolutely. You know, it's, uh, it's really a, uh, uh, they, are, they are both passions of mine. I'll put it that way. No, it's great. I, I only ask the question out of pure curiosity because same thing kind of happened with music for me because prior to opening up the Black Sheep, I, I played semi-professionally with a band, um, that was a Christian metal band, and they, we played around the uh, the southern belt of the states, where that was uh, a bigger audience for that kind of music. And there wasn't cr- the biggest money in the world in it, but you could make a living off of it. But I just it wasn't for me, right? I I wanted to do something where I could talk to people and drink coffee for a living, which worked out pretty sweet. But uh, now there's other passions that come out, and the cafe does the same, I guess, for you, where it affords me the ability to do other passion projects of, of mine. And I f- find there's a similar theme between every guest on this podcast, as well as myself, which is we're just passionate and excitable people, right? So there's things that you fall in love with that maybe you were never exposed to before. So you learn from other people. Um, and there's a bit of romanticism behind it, right? Because there's things that'll pop up in your life that you never thought you'd like. And here they are, right? Like food has actually become one of those things for me. I've always liked food. Everyone likes food, but not everyone cares if it's super delicious in that moment. It's some people are do it just for the nutrients or just because they're hungry. Um, and I'm one of those people that I want to enjoy everything I'm eating all the time. So I don't know if you have that. I've become a a little bit of an elitist with food. I won't eat it if I wouldn't serve it. 
you know, and we're not a fine dining place by any means, but I don't eat any uh, fast food or, or anything like that or frozen TV dinners. The only fast food I like is A&W or Popeye's. But that's on Sundays, special occasion. <laughs> I hear you. No, I I, uh, I would say that fast food is is an occasional necessity for yeah. me if I'm on the road for work or something like that, and there's nothing else available. But that's it. I, mm. I really don't uh, don't go for it. I, although A and W root beer is pretty good. Oh, it's amazing. You don't in, do box. In those frosted mugs. It's uh, oh. there's there's something about it. Like that's a that is a great food item, and 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 just because it's in a fast food restaurant doesn't make it a bad food item. And you mm. wouldn't want to drink it every day. I think that would probably kill you pretty quickly but uh uh but it's something that uh you know i certainly enjoy from time to time and and um you know i've always uh certainly i mean uh our kids are both teenagers now and when we've gone on family road trips we don't do the the fast food stuff uh mm-hmm. i research ahead of time and and you know we we've got a, you a know, stop along we, the way we can stop and go for a bathroom stop here but we have another you know 15 minutes to go before we get to the little cafe in belleville or wherever it is cool. that uh, uh that i found online that you know apparently does an excellent croissant you know? <laughs> <laughs> no i i love that i think the, there's uh and I'll get your opinion on this. I feel as if there is a bit of a renaissance of quality in culinary in the past maybe 10 years or so, maybe less, but about the past 10 years, because I find there's more restaurants now that are thriving, smaller restaurants that are thriving, um, doing smaller seats, like less seating, um, smaller dishes, and slightly more expensive, and not by much. They're, they're able to give uh, almost a similar pricing structure as something that's poorly prepared, but offering something that's better by tenfold um i I know even places like pelham even port coburn uh and even wellen has a few but there's the thing is it's just i find there's so many more of them than there used to be i think that's very true and and i think you know it's disheartening when you see places like that go under and uh um the uh, uh the realities of the restaurant business are pretty harsh you mm-hmm. know this yep the margins are razor thin mm-hmm. and uh you can price yourself out of a market very quickly and it's uh it it is a very very tough business and you really have to have something unique i think to uh to make a go of it and and once you have that formula um, you need to run with it and mm-hmm. stick to what you know. And, and uh, you know, that seems to be the sort of common thread that is behind the successful restaurants. And I agree with you. I think, you know, the past 10 years, there really seems to have been a, an increased focus on on seasonality, mm-hmm. on uh, using local agreement, uh, sorry, local ingredients when they're available. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, even if they're a little bit more expensive, spending that extra money, spending, uh, giving the extra care and attention to what's going into your food uh, and then what's going into your customers' guts, right? For sure. And I think um, if you think about how times have changed in, in a worker's market, people are getting paid what they deserve now, which for a while they weren't like there was a lot of merit based in if you wanted to go work at a restaurant that has an internationally renowned chef and today it's still the same like this you're going to take a very large pay cut just to be able to say that you learned from this person um, but I find the the teachers out there are more accessible people are getting paid better than they used to be farmers are finally getting the recognition that they deserve for being uh, quality growers and producers Uh, and so now even the chains 
have to pay more for their ingredients, which is boosting them up. So by contrast, you know, if you go to Wendy's, a Baconator combo is $13.99. You come here, you can get a burger that's twice the size and four times as good for the same price. So yes, Wendy's is, there's more of them located all around. But if you live in Welland, anyone's willing to drive here as opposed to there if, if they're looking for something a little bit better. Absolutely. So I think that's where we're at now. It's so much easier to get around too. Like I'm not the kind of person who wouldn't drive 30 minutes to get food. I think I probably spend more time on the road getting food than I do on the road for anything else. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing that we've seen, certainly in southern Ontario, um, as, a, as an example, is that uh, you know it used to be that all the great restaurants were in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Well, now, Toronto's a very expensive place to do business. Um, young chefs who want to get a start... Uh, you know, might work with a great chef in Toronto, but then when they want to branch out on their own, when they want to open their own place, finding a location that's affordable anywhere in the city in Toronto is is really, really difficult. And so you started to see this migration mm-hmm. out of Toronto into other places. First, it was Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton now has a really vibrant culinary scene. Um, you know, there are a couple of people who uh, uh, started and, and now have more than one location and, and really have uh, have put Hamilton on the, on the culinary map in Canada. Mm-hmm. That then spread into Niagara. And at the same time, we had the growth of our wine industry. And so we had uh, the start of... Uh, of really finer dining in Niagara was kind of tied to that uh, that beginning and growth in the wine industry. It's over 25 years ago now that On the 20 opened up. Yeah. And uh, Michael Olson was the opening chef there. And uh, he now teaches at Niagara College, of course. And um, But, you know, people like uh, Michael Olson and Mark Picconi and Tony DeLuca, who are all at Niagara College now, were all a really, really important part of the uh, of the growth of fine dining uh, mm-hmm. in Niagara, and then once you have that sort of base of fine dining, then you have smaller independent places opening up. You have uh, places that are not quite uh, fine dining in the traditional sense, but that are uh, you know places like Oddbird and Southampton, which say, is amazing, mm-hmm. and and it's it's uh, you know those those guys have serious chops from a culinary standpoint, mm-hmm. and uh, but it's casual, it's it's very uh, uh, very hip and very and a, very casual. It, yeah. It's it's a uh, but the food, the quality of the food they're putting out is superb, and they're using great ingredients and and applying uh, you know classical techniques to uh, to what they're doing. And I don't believe it's all that expensive either. I mean, you can go to Oddbird and spend 50 bucks for two people and have an outstanding experience. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if you want to start pairing cocktails and get desserts and put foie gras and everything, then yeah. Which they will let you do. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was one of the most life-changing food items I've ever had was that Oddbird having deep-fried foie gras. (laughs) That was a game-changer. Game-changer. Yeah, Shout out to Scott and Justin. You guys are amazing, so... Um, let's maybe, uh, let's, let's change focus because I could talk about food for 17 hours. Um, what got you interested in becoming a lawyer? Uh, well, I would, I would have to say it started, uh, cause my dad's a lawyer. Uh, okay. so I didn't know that. I've got a family history. He practices at Flat Picario as well. And, uh, he was, uh, uh, he was with another firm in Welland, uh, uh, originally he came to Welland after he articled in Toronto, mm-hmm. after going to Osgoode Hall in the sixties. And, and so I was born here in Welland and, uh, and grew up here and, and he was, uh, uh, he left his old firm to go in house with a big client of his, 
Um, and after a couple of years, really wasn't, wasn't happy doing that. He missed the private practice of law. And so there was a lawyer at Flepicario who was appointed as judge and was leaving behind a busy litigation practice. And so the timing was right, and he was able to sort of step into that practice and, and, uh, and run with it, which is, gosh, I would say, uh, I'm trying to think how long ago that was now, uh, almost 25 years ago, 23 years ago, wow, maybe. Yeah. So uh, just around the time that I was coming out of, uh, uh, out of law school. And uh, um, so I think that's what sort of planted the seed. It wasn't the path that I thought I was going to take. Um, I was interested in becoming a doctor. And uh, when I was in high school at Notre Dame, um, and uh, I had a great experience at Notre Dame, loved the school. It was, I had some wonderful teachers while I was there. Mm. And uh, I was really focused on science courses. And I actually took a semester in grade 11 and went to the Ontario Science Centre Science School uh, in Toronto. So I lived in Toronto with my grandparents for a semester, took science courses right at the Science Centre from some of the best science teachers in the province. It was amazing. Very cool. And, uh, you know, most of my classmates have gone on in science-related careers uh, and have done very well, doctors, engineers, uh, uh, chemists, and, and so on. And, um, uh, but it was while I was there that we actually, we did a tour at the um, uh, Toronto General Hospital, and we were in the intensive care unit, and uh, I got kind of weak in the knees. I was just, uh, I, I, I thought I had a stronger stomach for the realities of medicine, uh, but I, I found I didn't, and that started to make me think. And so I uh, started my first year university, and then after first year, I kind of shifted gears and thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go towards law because it's something that's always interested me too. So Interesting, yeah. Yeah. And so what, what type of law do you practice, just for people listening? So I do commercial litigation. Um, I don't do any family law or criminal or personal injury. Uh, I don't do any employment law anymore. I used to. But uh, uh, my focus is is primarily in insolvency-related stuff. So um, I uh, And usually I'm on the side of creditors. So I, I, I work uh, for a couple of large institutional creditors. Mm-hmm. Um, I do work for uh, trustees in bankruptcy and, uh, and receivers and... Uh, that work takes me all over the province. So um, I was actually thinking about it the other day. I, I, it's It's got to be about three or four months since I stepped into a courtroom in Welland. Uh, I've been in courtrooms elsewhere <laughs> over those three, four months, but not here. So I, so I do get in there from time to time. But So yeah. essentially what uh, you help, when, when a business goes bankrupt, essentially, and they owe a whole bunch of money, um, you help the creditors make sure they get the money back in which they were entitled to in the first place. Yeah. Very cool. I mean, I deal with litigation now. I never did until being on city council. Um, And obviously, we're not lawyers, but we deal with lawyers who deal with litigation. And uh, I mean, we have to provide direction. And it's a crazy world because sometimes winning is losing and losing is winning, Uh, you know, cutting losses and the best you can get. So it's really interesting because I I think um, being able to rationalize losing or or winning that will make you lose, you have to stay away from. I think it takes a special kind of person to see all sides of the coin in order to make a decision that impacts you in the least, uh, in the least effectful way uh, or the opposite that's going to benefit you in, in the best possible way. So, Well, it's interesting. I mean, being on city council, you're uh, first of all, you're a group of people. You're not an, a single individual who's mm-hmm. making those decisions on how to act on the basis of legal advice. And so you are taking an awful lot of legal advice, I'm sure, on various different kinds of issues, whether they're staffing issues, land use issues, mm-hmm. uh, intergovernmental issues, uh, those kinds of things. 
Um, so, you know, I think you you have a really good perspective on on that role of a lawyer as an advisor. Mm. Um, what I find sometimes with uh, with clients who haven't done a lot of of work with lawyers is, you know, there, there's the TV lawyer. There's the, the fierce advocate. Banging and on the desk. I am a fierce advocate. I When I go into court, I'm on my client's side and I am putting forward my client's best case. And But when I'm one-on-one with my client, I've got to talk about the warts in their case too. Mm-hmm. I've got to tell them, hey, that affidavit from your ex-business partner uh, says this. And how do you respond to that? Well, that's all lies. Well, okay, but tell me what your side of that story is. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, because the way it's set out is pretty compelling, and I've examined this person, and they seem pretty believable. And so tell me what, you know, what, and they're like, well, you're, now you're taking their side. Well, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to help I've take got your my side advisor better. hat on, mm-hmm. not my advocate hat. It's one-on-one, where, and I've got an obligation to give you my best advice. And I can only do that if you help me understand the evidence better. So, No, that's really cool. I, one thing I've always been curious of, because in politics, there's a little bit more leeway because, you know, we are, as counselors anyway, we're, we have to be basically the connection between people and government, right? We help to be that missing link. Um, but as a lawyer, you have a bit of a fiduciary responsibility. Uh, counselors could argue that we do, but I don't believe it's the same kind. Um, do you ever, do, I'm assuming you get a briefing of what that case looks like. You see uh, all the variables involved. You see that this person owes X amount of money or this business does. You see uh, the creditor's history. Are there times where you say, well, I don't believe that this client is uh, is going to win or you think that maybe they're in the wrong and you drop a case? Do, are you ever put in that scenario or is everyone that comes to you in the right? No, I, I, I wouldn't say that everyone who comes to me is in the right everybody's entitled to representation. Mm-hmm. And so the best that you can do is, is put forward your best case. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, if you, know, if you lose the case, you'll have gone into court with your client fully understanding the risk that that could happen. Yeah, so you give them, here's the risks. Yeah. Like, this isn't a very good case. You know, I'm happy to represent you, and I'm going to put my best foot forward, but, you know, this is going to be a tough one. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm assuming you're being very upfront and honest with them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I, I find it really interesting, the law world. That's actually what I wanted to do um, when I was a, a kid, before I had any understanding of what <laughs> what being a lawyer actually was. But I always liked the idea of arguing um for somebody or debating to help people. I mean, I kind of do that now with counsel, but at the same time, there was no schooling involved, as I'm sure many citizens can tell <laughs> for some of us. But uh, the, I, I've always been very interesting, uh, in, interested in the debate side of things, right? Is here's the information, here's the facts, you know, this is my best case, and hopefully it works out, right? I mean, yeah. it's, uh, I, I love the, the law world. I don't understand it. I don't know anything about it, but I've always been curious about it. So this has been fun talking to you about that. Um, have you ever found the two worlds merging? Has food ever helped you with law or law ever helped you with food? It's funny. Um, my accountant uh, years ago uh, said, you know, with all that food stuff you do, every time you go into a restaurant, it's either a client or a potential client. <laughs> so, so it's all business promotion expense. I said, "Oh, that's an interesting point." And actually, I have had a number of uh, uh, a number of clients who I have met through the food world, 
Um, and I've acted for restaurant owners and chefs and cookbook authors and, and, and done different things, uh, uh, through, through that. And, and that's, I, I enjoy that when those two worlds collide, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm able to, uh, to, to provide the services that I know best, uh, to the people who put food on my plate. So <laughs> it's great. That's awesome. Have you thought about, um, writing your own book? Oh, that's an interesting question. I haven't really thought about it. Well, really... this is my official request for you to think about it. <laughs> because, you know, I know we have a, a mutual friend, at least a f- mutual friend of my family and and a close f- friends of yours, the Olsons, who are both obviously recognized as being leaders in the culinary uh, industry, not just in Niagara, but internationally renowned. Um, and one of our two friends have just very recently released a book, uh, Living High Off the Hog. Shout Absolutely. out, Michael Olson. Um and I won't get into it because I know there was things that you told me off camera um, a few weeks back. But it maybe it started making me think that maybe you should be uh, writing a book about kind of your learnings in the culinary world. And obviously, you took a very big jump back in the day, starting the Niagara chapter of Les Marmitons. So I don't know. Might be an interesting read. Well, I, I I guess I can think about it. I don't know in, in all that spare time that I have. I guess. <laughs> well, I'm I'm sure that there's going to be a point in time when the practice starts to slow down. If you decide you want to take that road and take a chill pill in a few years, I don't know. But um, I I think it might be a really unique opportunity for not only recipes, but kind of a hybrid between recipes and some sort of autobiographical nature. You know, because talking about you know, Le Marmitant from an outsider, then an insider, and then growing it over the past couple decades, almost, not quite, almost, not quite two decades, but yeah. we're almost there, a decade and a half, um, having your brother involved, and then maybe uh, displaying recipes of things that you learned along the way, and how one helped you with the next, and I don't know, might be kind of interesting. Well, thank you. Uh, I have no money, I so I can't that. front it for you, but <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a fierce advocate also, so I'm on your side with this, but... No, I think uh, think it's an idea. Awesome, awesome. How is your family with your passions? Um, they love it too. I mean, they all love food, and mm-hmm. I have to say that cooking with my kids is one of my very favorite things to do in the world. And uh, um, I uh, uh, I always thought that that. Being in the kitchen with kids is such a great way to teach them things that they don't even understand they're learning. Mm-hmm. They're learning math. They're learning biology. They're learning nutrition. Um, they're Sometimes learning, chemistry and baking. Yeah. And they're, they're learning all of these things in, in, in one convenient, uh, delicious package. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's really, uh, uh, it's so, I can't remember who said it to me, um, the uh, the concept of quality time is BS. There's just time, mm-hmm. and uh, being in the kitchen, you know, cleaning beans and peeling potatoes and uh, uh, you know searing a steak and, and those kind of things. It's just time. It's it's time together. And along the way, you're learning life skills. You're learning how to feed yourself. You're learning how to feed others. You're learning how to spread that love with food. And, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's something that I, I've always loved. And so the kids have, um, uh, have been, uh, uh, great. You know, they, they just, and, and my wife, Teresa is, uh, uh, I, I would say that her palate has expanded very much since we met uh, many years ago. And, uh, uh, she grew up not loving food. She grew up not really, 
uh, having a uh, a great uh, relationship with food and and her family didn't uh, uh, didn't love food the way my family did and uh, so she's uh, now fish and shellfish uh, I, I still can't get her to eat any of that but uh, uh, but pretty much anything else and, and she likes her uh, her beef much more rare than she used to so. that's awesome yeah. no I I always ask that it's pretty um, it's a question I ask to most of my guests because I think a lot of the time what determines how far you take your passion is how much your circle uh, supports you in that in that endeavor because I know the first thought I had when I decided I wanted to run for council was what's my family going to feel about this because if they weren't going to be behind me I didn't it's not that I wouldn't have pursued it but I don't know if I would have pursued it as as uh, aggressively as I did, because I know that in a world like that, you're exposing them to another lifestyle that they wouldn't have been otherwise exposed to, right? So I, um, I think some passions obviously are different than others. Your house is going to smell a lot different than other people's homes because of the cooking, and that sometimes people don't want to smell garlic every day. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it's amazing that your family not only supports it, but they encourage you to... Uh, to push it further. And obviously you're growing that every year, every day, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And they certainly, uh, I don't know the, the, uh, spatchcocked Turkey that I did on my charcoal barbecue last night was very popular. With my <laughs> I bet it was. <laughs> I, uh, I was an awful, awful cook, uh, my whole life. I grew up watching Anna on TV and, uh, Michael Smith and all those guys in the food network. And I remember trying to replicate, uh, some of the recipes, but I wanted to start small because I had no tools and I had no experience because both my parents can cook. They just don't. So that was for me, always eating out was a, a, a similar theme in both sides of my family. Uh, but I always loved food. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to start cooking. And the first thing I did was try to make kettle corn at home and uh, olive oil when you burn it. It gets very black. <laughs> it does. And I almost burned, uh, burned down my father's bakery trying to make kettle corn. So <laughs> I've decided that I can't uh, I can't do that anymore. So owning owning a cafe was probably the best thing that could ever happen to me with food because my only research for being a restaurant slash cafe owner was watching Gordon Ramsay. So hearing him yell at business owners for trying to be chefs, right? He said, if you don't understand, stay out of that, right? Like, yeah. Hire a chef who knows what they're doing. Uh, and so that's what I did. And so, um, you know, I had Jesse here for three and a half years and he went to um, Conestoga for culinary and grew up at Ravine and did a stage in Montreal. I can't remember the name of the place, but very uh, respected and renowned um, restaurant. And so he gave me a lot of the tools that I need. And now I'm continuing the next chapter with Chantel, who has a different back background in culinary. She worked at White Oaks. And so I have all these people in my life who are helping me learn and grow. And I think it's important to have, um, you have to know where you stand, right? I knew that I wasn't good. So I was open to learning. A lot of people, I'm, oh, I'm good. I can, I can make a pie. And then they're not good at it. And so people don't want to offer any help. So I think there's a healthy relationship of being modest and being truthful about your abilities and disabilities. So absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think the, um, people who go into kitchen with a level of arrogance, uh, I think that can get dangerous really quickly. There are sharp things and hot things. And, uh, you know, you always have to respect that. You have to respect that you are surrounded by things that can do a lot of harm to people. Uh, there are ingredients that if they aren't cooked properly can cause you to be sick and, mm -hmm. and, or worse. And, and, and so 
you know, you, you need to always keep your eye on that ball that you're, um, that you're, uh, respecting the ingredients, respecting the tools and, uh, honoring the, uh, the farmers and the fishers and, and who, uh, who put the things, uh, before you to create the food. And if you're, if your primary goal is self-aggrandizement or, uh, you know, just, just, uh, growing your brand, you're going to run into trouble. I think. I love it. If, uh, if people want to get in touch with you, talk to you about the culinary world, about Le Marmiton, how can they do that? Oh, uh, absolutely. They can, uh, they can email me. Um, my email is easy to remember because it's marmiton at gmail.com, which is M-A-R-M-I-T-O-N. And, um, uh, you know, I can certainly, uh, uh, put you, uh, in touch with, uh, with the people, uh, who are, uh, in your area. If you're in Niagara, I, I mean, I'm sure you're heard all over North America. Oh, so. well, thanks. Uh, <laughs> Actually our third, uh, the, the country that listens to us third on the list, it's Canada, us, and then Cote d'Ivoire, which is a country in Africa, which I'm like, well, thanks for listening. I've never given you guys a shout out. So thanks for listening. We don't have a chapter there yet, but we're always open to growing. So. <laughs> exactly. So if you want to be the next president of Le Marmiton in Cote d'Ivoire, <laughs> Ross McFarland is at marmiton at Gmail. But thank you very much for being here, my friend. I can't, this is already our longest episode ever. We're at 33 minutes. Oh here. my goodness. It's so easy to talk to you. I appreciate you uh, giving us a little, uh, a little perspective into your life and um, into some of your aspirations. And it's been a pleasure and an honor. And, and certainly, having listened to other episodes of your podcast, uh, I'm, I'm I'm very humbled to be in the company of your guests. So uh, it's wonderful. Thanks. Thank you. I can say the same thing about you being in my office. So thanks for being <laughs> here, my friend. All right, and we'll see you guys next week. You're listening to Above the Mug, again, a podcast that highlights positive people. We're here to show you how you can use your passions to live your life passion forward. Hey, friend. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Above the Mug. For more episodes, check us out at AboveTheMug.com. Make sure to like, share, subscribe, review, comment, tag your friends. This way you're not the only person listening to this thing. We come up with a brand new podcast every Sunday at noon, so we'll see you next week on Above the Mug. Above the Mug.